Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, February the 21st, 2023. I keep on wanting it to be August, but I think that's rather wishful thinking. Um, last week, we did a show about writing as failure, all writing as failure, which may be true, but the writing life is one of humiliation, not just failures, but missed opportunities. And there's nothing more annoying as a writer to see someone come out with a book that you thought was a good idea, but you were too lazy or disorganized or incompetent to actually execute. For years, my agent has been telling me that I need to write a book about California as the future, a critique of Palo Alto, of Silicon Valley. I live in San Francisco, of course. So I'm, I guess, as well situated as anyone. But my guest today has beaten me to it. He's younger. He's better looking. <laughs> Uh, and he's more successful, he's richer, and probably sexually more proficient. His name is uh, Malcolm Harris, and he has a new book out. It's called Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. And he is talking to me from Washington, D.C. I actually happen to be in Washington, D.C. Uh, for various reasons. But I guess, Malcolm, doesn't really matter. If Silicon Valley is everywhere... Whether we're in Palo Alto or San Francisco or Oakland or Berkeley or Washington, D.C., everywhere is always Palo Alto. Is that the point of your book? Well, certainly talking to you over the Internet just to connect with each other uh, in Washington, D.C., I guess that's a, as good an example as any, right? Well, is, is the point of your book about Palo Alto being the heart of the Internet or is it something bigger than that? No, it's definitely deeper and longer than that, because the period that I'm talking about is really the whole 150, 170 years of global capitalism that is coextensive with the existence of Palo Alto, which makes it such a nice uh, bookend for the whole concept. We actually did a show a year or two ago um, with the biographer of John Steinbeck, who, of course, grew up in Palo Alto. And one of the things that always occurs to me about Palo Alto is I don't think there's any place anywhere in the world that has changed so dramatically over the last 50 or 100 years. Is that fair? Well, I think over the last 200 years, that's perfectly true, like more true than anything, right? That California is, is this last corner of the world that gets incorporated into this capitalist system that at that point had been relatively thinly colonized at all, right? It's the, this corner of the world that now we think of as the center of the world. And so the story is really how the, the last corner of the world becomes the center of this new world. You're not a, a dispassionate observer. Uh, you grew up in Palo Alto. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, when were you born and, and why did you grow up in Palo Alto? Well, I was born in 1988 in Santa Cruz, where my, my father was a undergraduate. Hey, you weren't born in Santa. So Santa Cruz and Palo Alto are actually separated by some mountains. Right. Very, very different places, as are the UC Santa Cruz, where my, my father attended, and uh, Stanford University, uh, where he was employed as a tech coder, uh, temp at the time, which is where he met my mother, uh, who was a research assistant. So they met at Stanford, even though neither of them attended it. Uh, and then 
later in life when I was eight. So in the mid nineties, we moved back because that's where law jobs were for people who knew about computers, which is what my, my father was doing. So that's how we ended up back in Palo Alto for them. And for the first time. Did you time go to Palo Alto me, high? Where did you go to school? I went to, to Palo Alto high. Yeah. Um, I guess you went to, if, if you were born in 88, you went to high school, beginning of the internet age, um, mm -hmm. or maybe after the dot-com boom. Did you feel you were living at a time where everything, where you were the center of the world, the center of the universe? No, no, certainly not for me. I was focused on Washington, D.C., which seemed to me the, where the most important things were going around. Uh, California, even though it was maybe a center for some some people send center of the economic universe. For me, it didn't seem like the center of the world at all. It wasn't until I left and looked back at California that I really saw California's importance. When I was growing up, I couldn't wait to get out of California to get to somewhere that I felt like mattered. So what about Palo Alto itself? Why do you position Palo Alto as the center or at least the symbolic center of California? Well, it's this great story that goes uh, right along with this history, right? So you have Leland Stanford founding the town to escape the class conflict of the 1870s, which he as the, the front man of the railroad uh, is vulnerable to all these workers who are really mad at him. And if you want to escape the class conflict with your family, what do you do? You move to the suburbs, except the suburbs didn't exist yet. So he had to create the suburbs. And so he creates Palo Alto as this outlet uh, for class conflict of this capitalist period. And that's what Palo Alto persists as through its entire existence is this outlet, this solution to the problem of class conflict. When you say class conflict, what does that mean? Social class conflict? Well, between uh, workers and the owners of capital. But didn't Stanford, Leyland Stanford, create the college um, as a consequence of, of losing his son? So yes, it came out of his own. I mean, that, that, that doesn't necessarily undermine your argument about class consciousness. Even wealthy people can have personal tragedies. But there is a, a personal element to this. Yes. Well, in his, and that's what becomes interesting is that he creates this school and names it. It's not Leland Stanford Senior University. It's Leland Stanford Junior University. And it's important to remember that the school is founded for and named for the Stanford's only child. Uh, but the school embodies it, it is an example of the change in the way that aristocratic privilege is transferred, right? So their child dies, they can no longer transfer, the Stanfords can no longer transfer their aristocratic privilege through their bloodline. Instead, they transfer it through this university to the, this settler class of the West. And they say that the children of California will be our children. And they didn't mean all the children of California. They meant a particular kind of child of California. And that's to whom they transferred the advantages that were constituted in Stanford University and the lands, right? 8,000 acres of land. And why did they do this for immortality? Well, yes, they had, they had particular ideas, just as all rich people have particular ideas about how to dispose of their fortune in ways that glorify them and extend their uh, concepts. But as with so many of them, they quickly spin out of their control. So Leland Stanford Sr. wanted to create a trade school that educated, uh, you know, the future engineers and uh, tradespeople of the West. 
and he died and his wife wanted to create the largest museum in the world. She was going to create the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art for the West Coast and Stanford, as well as a school of liberal arts. Uh, she dies under mysterious circumstances and the president of the university, David Starr Jordan, takes over and he wants to create a you know, bastion of eugenics and mining engineering in the West. And that's what he ends up creating. So any individual's intent uh, ends up getting bent, I think, towards the impersonal forces that end up being exercised through the capital. Is it possible in, in your view, uh, Malcolm, for wealthy people to do good. I mean, at that time, Stanford, I don't think was one of history's great do-gooders, but there were some. I mean, Andrew Carnegie, for example, who, like Bill Gates, spent half his life making money in a rather morally dodgy way, and then the second half of his life giving it away, and created the infrastructure of libraries and, and, and many other uh, valuable uh, institutions in American life? Or, or are all rich people simply bad, self-interested, and not capable of ever doing good? Well, uh, as I've told people, and as I write in the book, the project of the book isn't really the weighing of hearts, right? It isn't like, this guy's a good guy, he's a capitalist. This guy's a bad guy, he's a capitalist. This guy's a good guy, he's communist, whatever. You know, I talk about Amadeo Giannini, who founds what becomes the Bank of Italy. And I say, you know, as far as his personal characteristics, he seems to be a pretty smart, capable, you know, nice guy, son of immigrants, uh, made the best of what he had, you know, these nice American stories as far as we have. Does he intend for his the bank that he sets up to engineer the burning down of Armenian plum growers houses if they won't join the cartel? No, that's not his intent. That's not why he set up this bank. That's just a consequence of the historical forces that he set in motion and that he's part of. And so it's the investigation of those impersonal forces that I'm way more interested in than like, can a rich person be good? Of course, a rich person can be good, right? A rich person could give away all their money and then they wouldn't be a rich person anymore. And then it'd be really easy to be good. You know, it's so uh, those kind of questions are more like philosophical than the historical ones I'm investigating. So. Stanford wasn't, of course, the first wealthy industrialist or the first colonialist, settler colonialist, whatever you want to call him. What was he doing in the California project that was different from uh, other capitalists on the East Coast, in Europe and elsewhere? It's not that what he was doing was really so different than anyone else, so much as that he exemplifies uh, these trends, right? And so he was uh, a buffoon. He was uh, kind of a goofy guy who had goofy ideas. He didn't work very hard. It's not that he was, uh, you know, a clever capitalist like some of his other fellows were. He was part of a group of four guys called the, they called themselves the associates and others called them the associates uh, who led this railroad concern. Uh, and the other guys sort of put him out in three. Uh, Hunt, what's that? Huntington, Hopkins, and I, I can't remember that fourth offhand. I should, you, everyone would recognize their names because in California. Yeah, all but you got to do is go to uh, go around San Francisco, half the streets of San Francisco, and name exactly. Them. And then they lived on on Knob Hill, big guys. But the but Stanford is the one they really put forward as the 
the front man. They put him forward as the front man. And it's because he was the least smart and the least capable that he ends up as the front man for this group because they were sort of all expecting to get in trouble, right? They were sort of cons and hucksters who were making a lot of money through ways that they weren't supposed to be, right? It's not that they made money off the railroad in a straight up fashion. They made money as contractors to the railroad, for example, right? Or setting up real estate companies to buy land near where they knew the railroad was going to go. So lots of sketchy ways that they were making money. And they put forward the least clever of four of them, Leland Stanford, uh, to sort of take the heat. And he did. He took a lot of heat from the public. But he does sort of get away with it, I think, more than they would have expected when they put him up for that job, which included becoming governor of California for a time, right? And again, that's a job that the other ones did not want. Uh, and so they put him forward. So it's, it's as a perfect example of how unexceptional men come to embody exceptional historical forces that Leland Stanford is so great. And the fact that we know his name, despite him being uh, such an unexceptional individual. Uh, Do you think we would know example. his name had he not founded Stanford University? I mean, oh, you didn't even remember the fourth guy. Right, exactly. Well, uh, um, uh, yes, insofar, really insofar as we know anyone from the that railroad age, I think he would still stand for the the robber barons of the railroad age, even if they he didn't set up this university. So if you studied 19th century California history, but obviously the Stanford in the 20th and 21st century comes to mean this university and this town, which some people still call, you know, Stanford, California. We've done many shows, Malcolm, about the role of universities in in the contemporary in the contemporary aristocratic nature of America, Ivy Leagues, inequality. I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with all that. Um, how essential, in your view, is Stanford's idea of education in both the history of, of California and particularly in the kind of capitalist system that was evolving in Northern California. Very crucial. I mean, that's what this project ends up being all about is David Starr Jordan's Stanford. As the first uh, president of the university, he has a real eugenic focus on, eugenic and a nationalist focus and uh, racialist focus on what the purpose of the school was going to be, which was to create and produce men and women um, who were uh, exceptional to the degree that they could justify the unequal division of power in the world. So at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, this question of the equality of all people in the world is on the table, right? You have anti-colonial revolutions around the world. You've got the Bolshevik revolution is going to kick off soon. Uh, this question of now that liberalism exists, are we just going to tumble all the way down the hill towards the full equality of all people? And someone like David Starr Jordan is very opposed to this idea. And he's concerned that now military conflict uh, no longer favors what he thinks as evolutionarily advanced people and now favors uh, the masses since gunpowder exists. And what he says is the clown can shoot down the hero. Now the clown can shoot down the hero. And this is a problem for the future of humanity. And the solution to that ends up being education and the development of technologies that is going to allow the, the hero to shoot the clown from a distance. Uh, and those technologies have to be invented. 
and they are at Stanford University. Are you suggesting then that Stanford was an, an experiment in eugenics, in white supremacy? Uh, not suggesting. It's, it's pretty explicit uh, from the foundation and the first president. But even through, you know, they're re uh, asking for heights from applicants, you know, their height into the 80s. And they're not asking, they don't start asking that question because they want to like heavy diversity of heights. They're asking because they want taller people because they think taller people are more evolutionarily advanced. And it's a eugenic breeding program. So do you think that there's not much difference between the kind of eugenicist movement developing in late 19th, early 20th century Europe, which ultimately metastasized into Nazism as, as what was evolving in California and Northern California around Stanford and his school. There's an important difference. And that really comes out when this man, Vernon Kellogg, who's one of the first round of hires by, uh, by David Starr Jordan at Stanford. And one of his close associates is this guy, Vernon Kellogg, who's a eugenicist and, and believes in the, the same stuff. And he just detailed as a liaison to the German high command during World War I uh, as part of the food program, which is run by Herbert Hoover, who's another Stanford grad. Um, and when he's talking, he writes a book about his experiences talking with the German high command and their understanding of evolution versus his understanding. And at this time, the American evolutionists, the, the eugenicists and Jordan and them are very pro-peace. They're against war, they're pacifists, because they think war is dysgenic and that war is, you know, this problem of the heroes are going to get shoot down, shot down by the clowns. Your overall uh, genetic pool quality is going to decrease because of war. Kellogg goes and he's talking with the Germans and he comes back and he says, like, holy shit, you guys, these guys are crazy. Like, they believe sort of what we believe, but they believe it sort of justifies them to conquer the whole world. And they're going to keep trying to conquer the whole world unless we're going to fight them. And so the problem of uh, German proto-Nazi uh, German eugenicist militarism actually pushes the California eugenicists towards a more martial position. Malcolm, I'm assuming that you see a fairly um, uncoincidental narrative between those original eugenicists and William Shockley, of course, who, if anyone founded Silicon Valley, it was probably him, the winner of the Nobel Prize and a, and a noted uh, racial theorist. Yep. And then maybe even later Silicon Valley characters like Peter Thiel. It sounds to me as if eugenicism is back in fashion in Silicon Valley. So I guess none of this surprises you. Is Shockley uh, an important figure in your history of Palo Alto? Absolutely. A, a very important figure. And he stretches through this whole thing, right? It's not a, just a metaphorical connection. So Shockley's mother is trained as a mining engineer at Stanford University. Um, he meets, she meets the, her husband, who's an MIT mining trained mining engineer, and they're mining engineers in the West. Uh, they go to London, where they meet some other Stanford grads, namely uh, Herbert Hoover and his wife, Lou Henry Hoover, who are also Stanford mining engineer grads. They help him get a job at Stanford University as a lecturer so that he can help care for his wife and their new child, who is William Shockley Jr., who then grows up and spends his whole life around Stanford University. 
he's tested as a young child as part of Lewis Terman's genius search, right? The test, the tests that he's conducting throughout California as part, part of the Stanford bionomics efforts. Um, he actually scores just under the genius level. Will Shockley, Bill Shockley Jr. does, even though his mother scores way over. Um, so that's that's just an, an interesting tidbit there. Yeah, that's so like, funny thinking about this. That uh, you know, we we made the point about Stanford uh, and uh, about whether or not he's morally good. And you say, well, you can be you can be a decent person and still do a lot of historical harm. The astonishing thing about Shockley was how unpleasant as a person he was. I mean, he was clearly yes. there was something wrong with him, wasn't there? Yeah, no, he was a really, really detestable person. And, and I think that's, uh, <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting because a, a new biography of him just came out. I think it's the second one um, that it's very revisionist and takes a very like, it's by this uh, semiconductor engineering professor named Bo Logic. Um, very sort of revisionist pro Shockley position. But if you ask around the Bay about like the kind of person he was, people know, still have stories about the kind of person Bill Shockley was. He was a pretty much a psycho who was obsessed with other people's intelligence and the hierarchy of people's intelligences. Right. That was like, I mean, some his... people might say Malcolm that Shockley was the exception the Fairchild Eight all left. They they created Intel in the end, Andy Grove and all the rest of the story. Um, so you're you're cherry picking this. How would you respond to that criticism? No, not cherry picking at all. So what what then did the those Fairchild Eight go on to produce? Because I talk about them too. And again, yeah, it's but not they're not exactly whatever you say about Andy Grove or or the other founders of Intel. They weren't eugenicists, were they? Well, they were creating weapons for a eugenics project and that's that's the issue right it's not that what, the, the computer chip is a, is a eugenics project well absolutely so the first generation of silicon chips what were they used for i don't know you tell me they they, they all almost entirely entirely in fact the first generation of silicon chips go into minuteman one nuclear missiles and the project of minuteman one nuclear missiles was to put a loaded gun to the world's head and say if anything happens to America, everyone gets it, right? It was the promised destruction of the entire earth was this project. And that's what Silicon Chips uh, enabled. You know, when I started this project, and I think a lot of people, when they think about what is the, the signature product in the 20th century of Palo Alto, they think of the personal computer, maybe they think of the microchip, but they don't typically think of the nuclear missile. But that's what the project was, right? That's what the solution that they were looking for. And they found it. But you could argue that you could center that narrative in on the on the East Coast or in in uh, in Arizona. I mean, there's nothing uniquely Californian about the search for a nuclear weapon, is there? No, but there was one about the production of tools that enabled it, right? And the flow that resulted. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't study these other places and people have, right? There's a lot of writing, especially about LA, for example, and the missile industry there. And I think when people think about nuclear missiles, they think about maybe Lawrence Livermore lab, if they're thinking about Northern California, right? They're thinking about Los Alamos. Maybe they're thinking about Raytheon, uh, but they don't typically think about Palo Alto. They don't typically think about the Bay Area. But if you actually look at the production by value of those missiles, the testing instruments and the chips are 
huge components of what it actually took to produce those objects. We did a show a couple of weeks ago with the science fiction writer Annalie Newsom. Um, she knew it. She, she has a new book out, Terraformers, Imagining the World, I think it's 60,000 years. Uh, I, I mean, she's brilliant and the book is excellent, but it's a very contemporary book, thinking like you, perhaps about California. And the way you present California, which I, I think is very compelling, it's not wrong, in terms of the narrative created, for example, by mining engineers, there's always a, a science fictional quality, even if we're thinking historically. Is that fair? Yeah. Uh, well, what is uh, the pioneer mindset is sort of a science fiction idea of all the lecture, right? Like you think about uh, the story of science fiction is uh, grounded in the West and stories about the West. And California is really that that intersection, especially California in the 20th century, uh, among these people that I call the space settlers, right? The generation of, of men and women who show up in the 60s and create the Palo Alto that we understand now as Palo Alto uh, are imagining the future, right? They're thinking about science fiction all the time. And for them, science fiction is becoming fact in some ways, especially when it comes to consumer objects. And if you look at the like videos in the Prelinger archive, for example, you see the home videos of these people and their lives are transformed through these consumer goods all the time, whether it's cars or motorcycles or home video cameras that they're taking the videos with, uh, their sound systems. There's all sorts of technologies that are being created for these people. Uh, and California represents that, not to the, just the country, but to the world. And I think we still have that. We're still caught in that sort of golden age sci-fi idea of California. Right. Science fiction as a kind of presentism and a science fiction that does away with the past and the future. Yeah. And that's, I think, because one of California's California began experience. or imagined that it was starting afresh, that there was no history before California. Constantly. And like not even before California, but it reinvents itself every 10, 20 years that if you ask especially in Silicon Valley, if you ask them about 20 years ago, people may or may not have any idea what you're talking about. And that's 20 years ago. I always think it's so funny that Elizabeth Holmes compared herself to Steve Jobs instead of uh, Hewlett and Packard, who actually ran a testing instruments company. Yeah, I don't know if her, her memory went back that far. <laughs> no, but she was obsessed with Silicon Valley, right? She was obsessed with Stanford. She's obsessed with Silicon Valley. This was the only thing that she was interested in is the mythology of her play, this place. And it doesn't even go back 30 years, right? It only goes yeah, back to like what happened yesterday. The ultimate fabulist, I mean, to be kind, I mean, to criminal mastermind, I guess. Thinking well, but she really understood that. something about the place, right? It's not that she didn't get it wrong. She, she definitely understood uh, Palo Alto, I think. Yeah, and she dressed the part too. Um, Malcolm, I spent a lot of time, I fortunately never lived in Palo Alto. I have lived in the East Bay for a long time in Berkeley. Is Would it be fair to say that there's an alternative history of California in the East Bay? UC Berkeley, of course, began before Stanford and is always in competition with Stanford, in sports and culture and politics and in the kind of education it was offering. Oakland is very different from Palo Alto in terms of its history of labor. Uh, is there an alternative history of California across the Bay or is that delusional? Uh, 
I think there's an alternative history of California in Palo Alto. And so I talk about both and the connection between the alternative history of Palo Alto and the alternative history of the East Bay, because I think they're very connected. Uh, so I talk about the Black Panthers a lot. The Black Panthers had a huge, huge effect on the Palo Alto community. And we don't think about that now. We think about them as worlds apart, but it wasn't that wasn't true at all. Um, hugely interrelated. And even all the way back to the, the start of this project, right? I talk about anti-colonial revolutionaries who end up in Palo Alto uh, because they're fleeing the British. And this is a, a comparatively hostile or comparatively nice place to hide from the British and go about fomenting anti-colonial revolts from Palo Alto. So there's alternative history, you know, whenever you've got a boss who's pushing somebody around, you got a worker who's being pushed around, right? And so alternative history is, is capitalist history, right? You never get one side without the other. But presumably, had the East Bay won out, it would be a better history. I mean, you, you do, or do you see no agency here that there's something, some inevitable motor driving everything towards Palo Alto? No, no, there was there was struggle. I think I think you're right. Uh, I think there were. I mean, you can talk about the Roosevelt years. And if you think about uh, the East Bay and like shipyards and the prosperousness of Black Oakland at one time during the war years, which I talk about. And the role of uh, labor unions. Absolutely. And and I talk about this in the book, uh, of course, Um and you can think about that as a historical possibility, right? And you talk about the general strike uh, on the waterfront. You talk about it in, in San Francisco and in Oakland. So there were there were points of struggle that were lost for the most part, but there were also victories. And and so I don't present any of this as a foregone conclusion. But we can look at where we are now and think, look at who won, right? A little bit. We can see that we're living in a more Palo Alto world, and that's even become more the case since I write, started writing this project, right? When I was working on it in 2019, the global understanding of the role of Palo Alto uh, was different than it is now. Is there anything, Malcolm, given your analysis, we haven't even talked about Silicon Valley yet, but is there anything about Silicon Valley that's surprising, that's new? I mean, of course, Silicon Valley prides itself on its newness, on its innovation, but in your narrative, Silicon Valley is anything but new. It's true. There's a more uh, continuity and repetition, I think, than novelty. And so even when you look at something like gig work and you think of, oh, you know, Palo Alto is really the center of gig work, which is this new, it might not be a, a computer technology, but it's a social technology. It's a, it's a new thing that's happening. Again, it's that's very short memory because Santa Clara Valley had the highest density of temp work at the close of the 20th century, right? And so these are this is a repetition of the same patterns of how do you get out from under the obligations to labor by coming up with these new relationships and new brands for the relationship between capital and labor. Uh, so even something like gig work that seems very new is actually just this constant repetition. Malcolm, I think somebody once wrote uh, that history repeats itself first as tragedy and then as farce. Is there something farcical now about the way in which history is repeating itself in Silicon Valley? Yeah, absolutely. it's hard to say there's not, right? If you look at like cryptocurrency or Sam Bankman-Fried, he's <laughs> sort of the, 
the well, Sam Bankman Fried, you, you didn't even need to write your book. You could have just pointed, pointed to at him. him. Well, and he's actually not in the book. And I, I made that a conscious decision that like the, a problem I think, and you probably know, having, I would imagine seen a lot of these histories is that Silicon Valley histories tend to be very presentist, tend to really set in their orientation based on what is happening at that moment. And those go through rapid fluctuations. And so if I had been very presentist with this book, I would have started and ended with Sam Bankman Freed. But in 10 yeah, years, I don't you think- just, It just came out. You didn't even know. I mean, no, but he was, he was I, could have, I could have plugged him in there. I could have made it happen. Uh, let me tell you, I could have made it happen. Um, but I chose not to. You missed there, Malcolm. The book would no, have been no, doing well, but you would have- I'm telling you, I, mean, I chose Lewis not to. Michael Lewis is writing a book about Bankman Freed, although it's hard to compete with Michael Lewis. Yeah, well, but and so Michael Lewis's book about uh, the founding of Netscape is great. It's a very useful historical resource, but you can't draw uh, long-term lessons about the history of Silicon Valley from that sort of presentist attention. And I don't think Sam Bankman-Fried is going to be a name we remember very much in 10 years, except as a historical curiosity. And so I didn't want to be sort of spun off by someone well, like, like that. like Elizabeth Holmes. Um, but if you Bankman look on a... Talk about parody... Right. right. First as uh, tragedy, then as farce. He's definitely the farce version, right, of Steve Jobs. Um, Bankman Fried, of course, was very much into the idea of altruism. How do you make yeah. sense of the pro-business, altruistic business school movements that particularly seem to come out of Stanford University? Yeah. Uh, it what does seems he call like it? Effective altruism. That's where he, his stolen money, he channeled some of his stolen money anyway. Yeah. I read, I read John Stuart Mill when I was 16 too. You know, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I like, uh, it sounds like pretty old school utilitarianism to me. And then you uh, tack on some sci-fi to it and then you can lead yourself to some pretty crazy places. But the idea that this is like an, a, deep intellectual movement i find kind of silly but people have and i use this word carefully bought it i mean it seems to be a, <laughs> an attractive idea to the kids that go to stanford i mean i've done lots of shows with stanford professors who are mostly deeply disturbed by the kind of kids that they're, they're teaching like um you know the the, the startup entrepreneurs who who believe that mm -hmm. they can get rich and do good simultaneously. Did Stanford, did Leyland Stanford believe that? Is there something uniquely Californian about uh, believing that you can make the world a better place and become infinitely rich simultaneously? No, like you were saying, this is as, uh, as old as rich people, uh, right? Public works and noblesse oblige certainly is not a new concept or one that was invented. But I think that the application of capitalist science to that question might be specific to Stanford, or at least historically specific to the Stanford time period. And so when you have these effective altruism guys uh, thinking through like, well, it would really it would be better for me to work at a bank than work at an animal shelter, and then I'll just donate my money to the animal shelter, and that'll be better for the animal shelter. Uh, and then they take that to increasingly absurd uh lengths i think it's a fun game i guess if you have a lot of money thinking about what is the way to spend your money that makes you the best person i guess is a enjoyable way to spend your time 
but philosophically, like intellectually, I don't think it's very deep. And certainly doesn't deep, apply to most people, what right? Is like deep intellectually in your mind. Well, the the real struggle over the existence of the world and the people in it, right? We're at a, a ecological tipping point in in a number of ways. We have very pressing concerns. So I think anything that doesn't start with our universal pressing ecological concerns is not very serious intellectually. We had a Stanford professor on the show last week who argued that we now have the technology uh, to fix our ecological crisis. Yeah, You're not a technologist, and, and obviously there's some truth in that. Wind and solar do some good. But should we be particularly suspicious of that kind of message coming out of an institution with Stanford's legacy, historical um complexity shall we say yes why that's <laughs> i think i think you made a very good argument right there right um, well you're the no i'm interviewing you why i uh, know i know which is which is why you made it so easy with the question uh no absolutely these techno solutionist fixes that maintain the current order of power uh, I'm very suspicious of them. And they really do go back to Herbert Hoover, who, if you look through his history as the first yeah. member of graduate class at Stanford University, um, he is constantly looking for solutions that allow him to uh, allow him to, to address crises, fundamental social crises, and simultaneously maintain social hierarchy. And so Stanford is really built as an institution in order to, as a crisis addressing machine, that is built to maintain hierarchies through crises. So like if there's an emergency that brings us all to the same level and Rebecca Solnit, great writer writes about uh, how natural disasters bring us all, all people to the same level, right? They eliminate social hierarchies in the face of those kind of natural disasters or man-made disasters, Hoover's solution and the Stanford solution is always for efficiency's sake, we need to re reassert hierarchy. And so if you look at what Stanford type techno solutionists are going to be, they're always going to be market-based solutions, right? They're not going to be solutions for everyone. They're going to be solutions that reaffirm uh, a social system based on inequality. And so if that's, a, if you want a story about inequality persisting into the future and ways we can solve our problems while maintaining our levels of inequality, Stanford is for you, right? That's what that institution exists to do. And they've done that very well for the last 150 years, almost 150 years. Hoover, of course, got his historical comeuppance, but his kind of technocratic way of thinking about the world is doesn't seem to be particularly compatible with democracy. Um, what are your thoughts about democracy in the context of your argument about California? Can, can democracy be one of the ways in which we address all these problems? Or is there something flawed in it from the beginning? Well, I think that the, the threat that democracy represents to people like Hoover is the threat of economic democracy, right? If, uh, people can vote away the privileges of the wealthy, then they will tend to, and those privileges will tend to be abolished. And so democracy for them represents a real threat, and they had to find ways to recompose the social forces um, 
in order to get enough people on the side of property owners, get enough people on the side of the American project uh, in order to maintain those projects at a time when they're deeply under threat. And so I'm not sure Hoover necessarily got his comeuppance. You know, that's the, the story we hear about Hoover ends in 32. It ends with his defeat by Roosevelt. But Hoover outlives Roosevelt, like literally outlives Roosevelt into the 60s. And Truman brings him back into the federal government to try and help sell the Marshall Plan. And Hoover's deeply involved in the construction of the post-war era um, that ends up... Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Plan. And actually, I think Hoover's a much more interesting and important figure than FDR. So I think that's... Um... Me too, which is a big point in the book, for sure. So if anyone thinks that's the case, they should definitely check out this book. Well, there's there's a lot in this book. How long is it? Um, it's under it's like the, no, it's seven it's seven hundred and twenty, I think, total in the book. But a lot oh, of those. It's a pretty short book, Mal. So there's some notes in there. You know, it's not all. You don't have to read every page. Well, you probably you don't want to encourage people to skim it, do you? The important thing is that they buy it, Andrew. The important thing is that they buy the book. Yeah, well, they should I'm, definitely buy it or steal it. Even better, right? Find me. What about the relationship? You know, Tocqueville came to America in the middle of the 19th century and, more, and saw America as the project that would look different from feudal Europe. But it seems increasingly, and this is a consequence of your your Palo Alto world, uh, that America is increasingly looking like feudal Europe, feudalism without perhaps the formal social hierarchies. Do you see America in that sense as a return to the Middle Ages? No, no, I, I definitely see it as a continuation of capitalism. And so I think if you think about to Tocqueville in the middle of the 19th century, I think about Marx writing to Engels where he's looking at California and he's writing about California. And he says, you know, with California and with China and with Japan and Australia, it seems like capitalism actually has a lot of room to run and that we're probably going to lose these revolutions in Europe if capitalism has the whole rest of the world to keep expanding in, even if we have a strong workers movement in Europe, that into the 20th century, capitalism actually is in a pretty good position. And he writes this in a letter to Engels about California. And it's so funny because that's exactly what happens. And this book is in some ways the story of that happening. Uh, but I feel like he should have put that, you know, underlined it somewhere, or put it in a book in really big letters, because that's always something that people assume that Marx didn't understand is that capital had this room to expand in the rest of the world, which was going to negate the workers movement in Europe. Um, but that's definitely what ended up happening. And it is what he saw. And that's really the story of this book. Finally, Malcolm, I mean, there's a lot here. Is there a manifesto? You know, you talked about Marx. Is there a manifesto? Marx believed in capitalism. He just believed in a, well, he didn't maybe didn't believe in capitalism. He believed in technology. It, can technology be the fix here or do we simply have to get beyond that with the cult of innovation and invention? What is the fix here? Or should we even be thinking in terms of fixes? Is that too John Stuart Mill for you? Yeah, uh, well, I don't think this society is going to be able to fix itself. I don't think capital capitalism is going to find a solution to capitalism. And we've seen how capitalism encounters problems and then overcomes them constantly. That's capitalism's only mode of growth is to run up against barriers and then find ways over those barriers. 
uh, so that it can keep uh, propagating itself. But it's still an exhaustive system. And ultimately, the Earth is a closed system. And so very quickly, you have capitalists, their only way for them to imagine capitalism extending is to go to other planets. They want to leave Earth, right? So mm. uh, maybe my terraformer argument, and it's one uh, that certainly, you know, the the Musks and the Bezos is uh, pursuing. But it's also one that was made under the name of Cecil Rhodes at the end of the 19th century, where he's looking at where can colonialism keep extending, right? And he says into the star or his press agent says on his behalf, you know, I wish I need to, I wish I could conquer the stars because that's the only place that's left for me. Uh, so it's this whole to be, period, fair to right? Cecil, to be fair to California, though. I mean, there were lots of bad people in California, but not Cecil Rhodes. No, no, no. But started, but he was part of no, not in California, but he was talking about because it, it, it was full. It could have been, been him. He yeah, would have if he could have been quite at home with William Shockley in the uh, Hall of Shame. Well, and then you see someone the the intersection of these historical tendencies through someone like Peter Thiel, right, whose father was doing neo-colonial mining in formerly Germany-controlled Southern Africa trying to get enough uranium to build a nuclear bomb to defend the <laughs> apartheid regime. Uh, and then he ends up in Palo Alto as a member of the board of overseers for the Hoover Institution, who was a yeah, mining engineer. The last person, Malcolm, to, uh, to use the N-word with Peter Thiel. Um, is he really the worst? Well, it's not that, again, I'm not weighing hearts here, but in terms of people who are uh, understand them as part of this historical project, I think Peter Thiel is a little more sophisticated than someone like Elon Musk, who I think is uh, a little more clownish. And he only, I think, comes up once in the book as an offhand mention. Do, do you bring up any of the good guys of Silicon Valley, the Reed Hoffmans? You know, Reed Hoffman and Thiel were both at Stanford, and one is always considered the good guy. He's funding the Democratic Party, and Thiel is always the evil, you know, Bond villain. He probably should be in a movie at some point. Is there a role for a Reed Hoffman in, 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 in a world that's better or do we need to eliminate him too? Uh, I'm curious how those people think that are going to fit themselves into not just a better world, but any world that we're going to have, right? Because they're being forced by circumstances to pick sides on, on these issues. And I don't think any, uh, who's rich in Silicon Valley have covered themselves in glory when it comes to picking sides on social issues.